Have you already registered for the live recording of episode 200 on November 30th? If not, head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and register there. If you're already on the email list, then good, you'll get that invite. Also, are you early in your career? Are you maybe a student that is uh, more advanced in the career? Then also register for the workshops that we have, the three-hour interactive fun workshops that we have to boost your career as a statistician on 1st of December. Just head over to the Effective Statistician and register there. And please tell your colleagues about it as well. You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, I have an interview with Margaret Gamalo about how to combine a control arm with real-world evidence data. So a really, really on-vogue topic. Stay tuned for that. And now some music. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. So join hundreds of your peers that all pay really, really little for lots of, lots of content. It's only £95 for high-income countries, which is about the same for dollars and euros. Head over to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to a new episode of the Effective Statistician. And now I'm talking to someone who I actually worked alongside in the same company for quite some time, but we never really met. And so I'm really glad to have Margaret on this podcast episode today. Hi, Margaret. How are you doing? I am very good. And thanks for inviting me, Alexander. I've heard about it, uh, but this is an exciting opportunity to just uh, casually chat yeah. about capacity scores. Yeah, awesome. So before kind of going into the topic itself, maybe you can give us a short kind of background where you have come from, uh, what brought you to statistics and what's been your career up to now? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So I come from the Philippines uh, originally. Um, I actually majored in mathematics when I was in undergrad. And then one of my professors, uh, when I was at the University of the Philippines, has a friend in uh, the United States who is looking for a, a graduate student. But he was in statistics. And then my professor said, well, I don't want you to stay in mathematics because you'll end up poor. <laughs> he, was, he was actually very candid about it. Yeah, that was really exactly what he said. And that was actually the uh, precur you know, what led me to go to Pittsburgh um, and studied statistics over there. Um, and then after that, when I graduated, I had a very short stint uh, when I was in Kansas City. And then somebody saw me making a presentation um, 
at uh, the Joint Statistical Meeting in 2007, if I recall, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and asked, well, you know, would you interested in, you know, looking at an opportunity at the FDA? And I said, well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> After a presentation you gave at JSM. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I recall um, that was in 2007. So I did interview at the FDA after that uh, and then started at the FDA, uh, I think, June of 2008. Um, I stayed there for quite a while. I, I really learned a lot from when I was at the agency. Um, and I left the agency eight years later uh, and joined Eli Lee. Um, And in Eli Lili, um, I mean, I loved it there as well. There were a lot of great people. I learned so much from um, working in late phase development for Barisitnib um, and, and got really good at dermatology <laughs> <laughs> for which yeah. um, I am doing the late phase development for Pfizer's portfolio in, in dermatology. So practically dermatology statistics. Um, Do you remember what was your presentation at CJSM at the, at the uh, time? I'm forgetting that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, that was that was actually, it was a conversation after that with somebody from the FDA that led me to go to the FDA. Um, But yeah, it was, and, and I, even, even when I joined Lily, it was actually another conversation I had back then with uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Ruberg. Okay. So I did make a presentation at the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative. This is for multidrug resistant infections. We're trying to look for ways to innovate uh, there. And then, you know, so I was making a presentation after that, Steve, Steve Ruberg was saying, well, you know what, if you're interested in joining the industry later, <laughs> tell, I mean, let me know. Two years later, yes, that's what happened. That was actually what led me to uh, Eli Lili as well. So all of these are happenstance to me when I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. And now uh, recently you gave a presentation at a journal club. Uh, with the PSI, and there you actually talked about propensity score matched augmented controls in randomized clinical trials, a case study. Yeah. Yeah. So another kind of presentation that brought you up another opportunity, this time not a job, <laughs> podcast interview, but it's, yeah. you know, that shows how you know, exposing yourself and giving you know, presentations, giving uh, talks, sharing your knowledge, Helping the community helps you as well as a presenter. How much it kind of gives back to you, isn't it? That's really true. I mean, you know, I mean, thinking about it, I mean, going back to that presentation, that presentation I gave when I, when I met Steve Ruberg was, was also related to the one that I wrote <laughs> Yeah. Interestingly, because uh, that was really in uh, this 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 propensity score method that we created at that time was was really geared towards innovating clinical trials for multidrug resistant in I mean infections caused by multidrug resistant bacteria. And you're right, external engagement before was I didn't really think of it that way. It was another mentor of mine that actually led me to it. Uh, not sure if you are aware of Ram Tiwari. He was the, the director for medical devices at the FDA. 
Uh, mm-hmm. He was at Cedar before, and then now he's he's head of methodology at Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, but it was actually him who kind of like just kept me going. And his words is like, you know, just 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 keep on working. Sooner or later, people will hear you. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So we talked about the the title um, and that's a method, but let's go back a step. And what's a problem that you that you were trying to solve or that you were facing at that time? Yes. So as I've said, so this was this was geared towards innovating clinical trials in infections caused by multi-drug resistant uh, pathogens. At that time, the idea was that. We wanted to use real-world data or whatever we have, electronic health records at that time. But then um, there's always this danger of, you know, what if they are not really the same? And therefore, what's going to happen is that the comparison between the treated as well as the external control, which practically is, you know, I mean, there's no treatment for multi-drug resistant bacteria. So it's practically placebo. There was a there was a concern from the regulatory agency at that time that, well, what if it's not really the same? We're not really comparing the same, um, the same patients. And so the idea was that, well, what if we randomized a little bit to placebo and then we just supplement it with the external control. In such a case, we have a benchmark with which we can compare um, the external control. So there is a concurrent control in the clinical trial or in the randomized clinical trial that could be used as a benchmark to the external control. So that was really the main problem. It was really very simple. And at that time, so, you know, so the problem is really kind of you have don't want to overexpose patients to placebo. Exactly. Yeah. You and don't maybe to... it's could be also something like a rare disease where you don't yes. have any, you know, not so many patients. And then the problem is how do you make sure that the patient profile that you have in the clinical study is uh-huh. the same as in the real-world evidence that you yes, use to true. kind of bolster up the, the placebo. Yeah. Um, yeah okay. The other idea there is that, well, the baselines can be fairly reasonably similar between, let's say, the concurrent control in the, uh, or between the, the treated as well as the external control. Because of the severity of the patients, physicians might treat them differently eventually for the mm-hmm. external control. And it's not really something that is comparable to what was in the clinical trial. So the way that you treat the patient, given the severity of the patient, might might eventually make the responses of the patient so different from when when it's supposed to be in a clinical trial. So that was the other danger over there uh, that we were trying to consider. And so that, that led to the idea that we need to have an assurance, some context, that this use of the external control is, is not really going to give us a false sense of um, decision, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> a conclusion of efficacy. Mm-hmm. The, the first question I would have about that, if you, can, if you have a randomized study, then mm-hmm. kind of the, the start point is very clear. It's the randomization date. But if you have a real-world evidence uh, data set, there's no clearly defined start date. Yeah? So, so what, what is kind of the... How did you deal with that? 
Oh yeah, the 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 index date. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, we call that the index date. That they are not going to be very similar. One of the things that we are doing in here, you know, I, we we looked at this one as well in another example for type two diabetes. No, no, I think it was adolescent type two diabetes, and and pretty much it's really just you know when was. Um, when was the patient diagnosed, and then whether at that particular time um, that patient computable phenotypes um, mm. are, are 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 very similar. But but you're right. You know, there's no such thing as a definite index date that is mm. similar to when the patient was randomized and dosed, because that's never that's kind of nebulous all the time. You know, mm. and it, and it it requires a lot of clinical judgment. When is the index time really defined? Um, we can't. We we get into a lot of problems like this. For example, immortal time bias, where at that particular you know period. This patient will never experience a particular endpoint because yeah, actually... yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it <laughs> could be also the other way around. Yes, yeah, they said you know they, you because of a certain kind of bias, uh, all the patients in the real world evidence kind of get get a certain. Uh, That's true. It, yeah. it could be as well. Like for example, you know um, that these patients are severe enough already when you enroll them in a trial, and that's exactly why all of them have very worse outcomes. So that's the other way around. But I think of it as, I mean, there's really uh, an impossible way. Uh, I mean, I would say a quite difficult criteria to, to really ascertain what is the index state. And it requires a lot of discussion, um, um, you know, what, what would be the best. Right. Yeah. Uh, one is yeah. either from the clinical study team or with the regulatory agency because they have to weigh in as well <laughs> for them. Yeah. Like, okay, this is the best um, index state. Yeah. Now, how does a propensity scoring come come in? So the propensity scoring is is really just you know as we know um, we are it's it's kind of like a probability of you know being in the the treatment group or being in the control group, mm-hmm. um, um, and it's really just a sufficient kind of like a sufficient statistic that um, it's it's based on the idea that. If I don't have a randomized trial, I can actually make the treatment assignment independent of the outcomes by conditioning on a set of covariates. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is the set of covariates can be very, it's huge. And therefore it is really, it can be really, uh, it can be a little tedious to do it one by one for all of mm-hmm. these covariates. And so the propensity score is just a way of summarizing the information from all of these covariates in one single uh, probability and conditioning on that probability, the treatment outcome should be independent of the assignment, and therefore you can do all your causal estimation and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. It's basically, but here it's not so much about treatment, like in an observational study where you have an observational study and um, some patients get treatment A, some patients get treatment B, and then you <laughs> use propensity scoring to compare it. But here it's kind of whether you're in a trial or of not. being in the clinical trial versus not being in the clinical that, trial. Yeah, that is true. Yes. And this is actually making a lot, making it a lot more complicated because you can actually think of it as a three-arm trial as well, where mm-hmm. you are, you know, your, your randomized trial has two arm, I mean, 
of course, you have treatment, you have concurrent control, and then you have external control. And then you want to match external control to both treatment as well as concurrent control. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you can, you can actually match it to kind of either the placebo, the yeah. treatment, or the total. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or the total. You're right. And actually, there has been a lot of research that we have done on this one as well. What is really the optimal? Is it really matching with respect to the clinical trial or matching with respect to the treatment? And the answer is actually just staring kind of like right in front of us. <laughs> When we did a lot of simulations uh, on this, um, the answer is that whatever is your causal estimate, that is where you want it to match. So for example, in, in, if, if it is an, an augmented control, you wanted to make sure that your external control is matching the treatment, not con the concurrent control in that trial. So if, you always wanted to go back to the original causal estimate. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, interesting. So the... If you're matching, you're not only matching for baseline, but also for post-baseline covariates? Um, well, um, actually both. Um, I would say um, this was actually one of the interesting questions uh, that was raised to us. We went to the FDA at one time. We were trying to propose the same idea for type 2 diabetes in children. And... Um, um, Uh, at that time, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you know Mark Rothman and, and Mark Levinson at the FDA. They are, you know, experts in this area. Okay. And then Mark, I think it was one of them, you know, <laughs> you know, they were my colleagues, you know, very esteemed uh, statistician. One of them was saying, well, you have to match it with the post baseline as well, right? And at that time, I was scratching my head. I'm like, well, why do I need to match it with post baseline? <laughs> Because they were, you know, I think for me before, my, my only thinking was really just, well, baseline is the only one that we can really make sure um, about, you know, that we are not trying to match with post randomization events. Yeah. yeah. But then I realized that actually, Post-randomization events or anything that after the index date is actually very important because as I've said earlier, physicians might learn how to treat a patient after the fact yeah. because of the severity. Um, and this is also the same thing as what we call a channeling bias, right? We're channeling a particular patient just because of what we see previously. Mm -hmm. And that is beyond you know, the, the randomized trial because in a randomized trial, all the procedures are... Um, yeah. and so we don't do that and, and then and then it dawned on me like oh yeah yeah that's right they actually are making a very good point <laughs> and this is really the difficult part um when it's it comes to matching because it's not only about baseline anymore um it's also about things that happen after the index date or after um after the randomization date whatever it is But that's quite difficult to actually adjust. I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's interesting. It it's, gives a completely different viewpoint in terms mm -hmm. of the, if you think about the placebo arm in the clinical trial, and yeah. you very much kind of restrict how you can change treatment. Exactly. And then you see kind of in the world, real world, the treatment changes are actually different. Yes. And kind of you, you can think of it as 
your placebo arm doesn't have a lot of external validity. Correct. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> that okay. is also true. You can all, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a glass half empty and half full. It could be that your placebo arm actually has no external validity. That's right. Yeah. And, but it also can go in both directions. Yeah. That's so so in one side, exactly. you know, maybe then it has less efficacy, but also, you know, Correct. less safety problems. So exactly. it's, it's, it's not that it's, you know, always kind of biased in one or the other way. And yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really a good way of looking at it. You know, depending on which lens you want to look at it, you want to look at it within the lens of the randomized clinical trial, then of course this is going to be biased because there is a channeling. On the other hand, you look at it from the perspective of an observational trial, you say that the randomized clinical trial doesn't have clinical, I mean, external validity because it doesn't reflect the true nature of practice outside. <laughs> yeah. And of course, bias is maybe not even the right work because... It, maybe it's a different estimate. Just. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, 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 you know, we can complicate all of these things, you know, um, with, with, with estimates. Because, yeah, you're right. I mean, it could have been that, well, for, first and foremost, a randomized trial, the objective of which is to show a causation, whereas um, an external data probably was collected very differently. And therefore, the estimate at that time for a position was so different. So... Which databases did you look into to oh, um, yeah. so get this the one, real world evidence data? Yeah, so this one is actually interesting because at that time we were still at the FDA. We didn't know, we didn't have any of these. Um, um, so what we did was just to look at all the trials um, um, within the FDA database and kind of like um, um, combine certain placebos um, um, for trials that are very similar and make it that make that look like as as your um, you know if you combine a lot of things and hopefully that will look like you know it, it's going to be external control but at that time yeah so it was it was and of course you know we are bound by um, rules of privacy of data and so we yeah. cannot really just use like it directly so we have to create certain ways of okay how can we model all of these uh, combined uh, trials a placebo in combined trials and make it look like it is the real world so just just so many things that statisticians do like you know adding certain noise and so on until it looks like, oh, yeah, 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 this one looks like what, what we have now in our database. <laughs> That's interesting. So you basically did a first a kind of meta-analysis across mm -hmm. different studies, a mm -hmm. patient-level data meta-analysis. Oh, wow, that's another area of complexity. <laughs> I remember, I remember. So Jane uh, was my intern before she's now in, uh, she's now in Takeda. Uh, when I was reviewing her code at that time, it was like very long. I mean, when I was, I mean, it's, it's dizzying. I, you know, I, <laughs> I was, I was thinking at that time, because she was this excellent statistician who can program a lot of, I was, I was, I was joking at her and I was like, Jane, I think your code looks like Chinese characters to me currently. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> not that you know sometimes it's quite i mean as you know programming it can be really difficult how one programs is very different from how you program because yeah. it's pretty much how he or she actually creates i mean does her logic yeah. <laughs> so at that time i remember it was more than a thousand lines you know i was like man <laughs> I really, I really, I was struggling um, understanding it. But yes, it was quite complicated because we have to do a lot more uh, than just, you know, um, 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 getting data from uh, an external source. But even I think, you know, I, I, I have also talked to a lot of people um, who has, I mean, when I was at Lily, um, who has used all of these uh, real world data. And it's not really very easy as well. It, it's kind of like, there is such an art to it. It's not really science at all. It's not only statistics because it's so messy. And so you have to do a lot of things as well, um, pre-processing and so on. So I yeah, think I think about the same. <laughs> it, it already starts with having the, um, the relevant data in the real yeah. world evidence as well. So do you have the clinical endpoints that you're looking for yeah. in real world evidence data? Or don't you have it because it's just a claims database? And yeah, exactly. if you have um, electronic health records, then maybe you know there's other problems that come with it because it's only from a certain area or exactly. you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a you know maybe it's yeah. predominantly male or whatsoever, and yeah, so there's other kind of limitations. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, you know all these problems. So we did as well for COVID. Actually, when COVID started, we started trying a, a trial in baricitinib, and we wanted to know what would be the placebo rate, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah, placebo rate as well as what would be the rates of, let's say, ventilation and so on, or death. Um, even for people that were treated with uh, steroids. Mm-hmm. But it was extremely difficult. I, knew, I know that it was very useful, but it was extremely difficult because I thought that the results that we are getting are not really kind of like, okay, um, this, is, it, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I think it's because of the, again, uh, as I've said, patients are probably treated very differently how... Uh, how they, uh, and when when they are included in this particular database. So no matter how you slice and dice, there's always these caveats that you have to kind of like you have to pretty much understand the disease and such that you don't fall into the trap that you know this is probably what's going to happen uh, in the clinical trial as well, which probably not going to be the case. <laughs> yeah, and I think especially in an area where there's a very rapid. Correct. learning like in COVID yeah exactly. if you kind of yeah. think back of how patients were treated at the beginning of the pandemic that's probably looks completely different to how patients got treated a year later yeah yeah exactly yeah and yeah, I'm and, sure. <laughs> and and you know not even speaking about the different countries that got involved yeah so so um yeah I think Taking it practices <laughs> I think if you have with real-world evidence, that is also something that you always need to take into account. What is kind of the, when is your data outdated? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is actually, um, so there is another paper that I am writing with a few of my FDA colleagues. Um, This is is a paper 
uh, all of us are in the industry now. So we tried to review all the real-world data applications that were submitted to the FDA, uh, for which the FDA already has um, a decision. So we, we reviewed all of what the FDA wrote. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. We reviewed every single thing that the FDA wrote uh, on their review. And um, y- yeah, you can pretty much see that there's a lot of these things that um, and particularly for rare diseases where you really have to have a very long observation window, mm-hmm. right? And so these patients from 1980s are probably very different from these patients in the early 2000s. And, and, and that is something that you really have to um, account. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, you can, do you think you can also do some kind of propensity scoring on this and kind of have <laughs> something like, well, something like kind of time variable, yeah, something like that. I think, that. yeah. I mean, I think, I think um, you could always do that, right? You know, what would be the time component? How the time component has already changed the practice, and therefore the response. So there's kind of like a drift. I think that it can be done. At the end of the day, I think you still have to kind of like. Sh- um, I, I always am a, a, a big proponent of tipping point. Mm-hmm. know yeah. when the decision is actually wrong when will my decision be, will, will flip and then therefore i would have an idea of how these results should change yeah so tipping point analysis you can also do in lots of different ways if you think about uh let's say time people get got into real world evidence database yeah and maybe that was started in let's say 1980 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're now running something, and you have patients starting in 2020. Yeah, and so 40 years later, so now you can of course say, okay, you know, we look just kind of first we include all patients, and mm-hmm. then we include less and less patients. Yeah. You know, we cut at 81, 82, 83 up to 2019. Yeah, and, and see, see the range. <laughs> yeah, how, how things are changing. Oh. Or you could also look into some kind of propensity matching. Yeah, so is that you say, okay, we take um, the time difference to 2020 as, a, as another covariate, and then you could kind of potentially make some kind of curve on it. Yeah, so is yeah, that it downweights, you know, the uh, more and more the patients that are, um, older. That are older. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can do that as well. So there is a way of, of, of incorporating that within your propensity score. Again, the propensity score is just the probability of being in treatment or being in the control. And you can account and you can probably create, or in your model, you can probably create a drift model where the drift actually incorporates the time. Uh, what's, what's a drift model? Um, so we put this usually, um, so when we are trying to model the treatment response, when we are doing the causal inference, you put this at the, as the intercept and the intercept can be dependent on the time. Okay. Yeah. So it's really yeah. just, it's really just that, uh, and the rest would just be dependent on, let's say covariates. It's mm-hmm. only this particular. So a lot of the times when we're doing that, we usually just use, um, you know, a fixed, uh, you know, a particular yeah. alpha or whatever, mu sub zero, and then a random effect at the end. But you can create this drift as dependent on time. And that should probably, that probably will help. And that's a good suggestion. 
Awesome. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Great. So there's a lot of different ways you can uh, can can model these things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can even create like, for example, in time to events, right? Um, there's usually this time varying covariates. Mm-hmm. You can probably use that as well. Um, um, in such a way that you can change certain, you know, model behavior or, or treatment response by by interacting time with respect to the covariates of uh, of the of the person. So, for example, you know, the way that these people of age sixty five are treated now is probably very different from the way age sixty five was treated before. Yeah. But not for the other levels of that covariate. That not for the other levels of covariate age. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So obviously, as you can hear as a listener, there's lots of further research to be done. Um, if you're interested in this area, it's a very, very hot topic at the moment. And I'm pretty sure it will continue to be a hot topic because there's so many new treatments that go into all kinds of different rare diseases uh, that yeah. it's, uh, I think, more and more people see that it's a really high need because if we don't solve this problem, we'll make potentially, you know, studies very, very long and very long studies have a problem in itself. Yeah, Um, (laughs) you're right. We we create maybe, you know, we potentially withhold good, good treatments for patients. Yeah. And, or we might, you know, study it for a very, very long time and, it's futile yeah so futile, I think, yeah we yeah. wanted as much as possible we wanted to make any even for the regulatory agencies right the idea is to be able to come up with an answer that is quick yeah and, and it's good for everyone good for the patients as well <laughs> and it doesn't mean that you can you know you need to stop investigating there yeah? exactly so you can still it's- kind of look uh, prospectively in terms of putting up registries and things like that Excellent. and see kind of how how your drug is really doing. Uh, yeah, exactly. You can use the accelerated model or the emergency use model <laughs> exactly. authorization. That yeah. would be a good that would be a good thing. I mean, if we can expedite things and then eventually check, you know, whether indeed, I mean, our our initial data was actually consistent with uh, future data in showing that there is benefit uh, that patients are gaining in these treatments. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for this awesome discussion about propensity scoring, use of ex- real-world evidence, um, and all the problems that come with these in terms uh-huh. of where do you find the data? Do you find the data? How do you match? What is the right estimate? You know, how do yeah. you look into <laughs> these uh, things? How do you adjust for baseline differences or post-baseline differences? Mm-hmm. Um, and we also talked quite a lot about the, the importance to present your research. And yeah. that, that leads you to lots of, lots of good opportunities. That is um, true. Yeah, <laughs> I almost forget about that. We're trying to circle back. So, <laughs> Margaret, any final recommendation you would have to the listener? Um, I I just say that yeah, just keep on going. I mean, for me, a lot of the times, you know, I just I just follow whatever whatever is in my mind, and you know what I like doing. Sometimes you can call me crazy, but 
you know, when I'm, I mean, looking back at this particular paper, at that, it took a long time for it to get published, actually, because the idea was not so um, was well accepted before, because why would you randomize at the same time, um, do an external control? At that time, nobody really likes that idea. Yeah. But then now it's it's catching up. So I, I just say that, you know, just keep on doing something that's really innovative. Um, the, the innovation actually has a very long trajectory and sometimes it meanders into certain corners and so on. And then, but then eventually, you know, people just accept it or, or what? Because of course, science moves by consensus. So just yeah. keep on going. <laughs> yeah, there's always kind of zig and zags in, in science. And um, <laughs> Timing is really, really important. That's a good thing. Yeah, timing is important. That's true. Yes. Um, yeah. I was actually reading one paper on vaccines uh, about 10 years, uh, just recently, but it was 10 years ago. And like, oh, this is very relevant now. <laughs> so, <okay. laughs> yep. so there was actually the, uh, what we're talking about is the um, PSI Journal Club uh, yeah. that um was on 6th of July in 2021. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is also available on the video on demand uh, library of uh, PSI. And uh, as this is the part of the journal club, it's actually available for everybody. So there are certain videos that are only available for PSI members, but this one will be available for everybody. So if you want to listen to Margaret's talk, and there's also another talk by Chris Haybron, which yeah. I, I'm pretty sure is also very, very interesting in a uh -huh. similar topic. Check it out and uh, just go to psiweb.org and you'll find there very, very easily the video on demand stuff. Thanks so much, Margaret, again. Thank you very much, Alexander, again, for inviting me. And this has been a very uh, good conversation in this, uh, you know, muggy afternoon here. <laughs> Okay, bye. Bye-bye, thanks. The show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes or the references and learn more about this podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.